For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. And this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, before we get going, I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, FreshBooks, which is a dead simple cloud accounting software that's saving millions of freelancers, namely about 5 million freelancers, from the scourge of dealing with their day-to-day admin and paperwork. I know from experience no one likes to do this stuff. It is, uh, it is the elephant in the room. Who the hell is going to take care of all of this expense reports, late payments? Ah! So with FreshBooks, it takes about 30 seconds to create and send a really professional-looking invoice. Your clients can pay you online, which seriously improves how you get paid. In fact, if they don't pay you, FreshBooks can send them an automatic reminder, which is far less awkward than a phone call. They've also got great expense tracking. So when you get a business lunch on your debit card that gets automatically added to your FreshBooks account like magic. So for a 30-day free trial, go to freshbooks.com slash longform and enter longform when they ask you, how did you hear about us? That helps support the show, which FreshBooks is doing. Thank you, FreshBooks. Here's the show. Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here with Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. What's up, you guys? Hey. Hello. Uh, on the show this week, Cy Hirsch. You probably know who that is. Um, we've been trying to get him on the show for a while. Yeah, can we just acknowledge that's exciting? That's insanely exciting. It's uh, very exciting. Uh, um, we we got very close uh, right when his piece about the Bin Laden killing came out in London Review of Books, and now he is publishing an extended version, and we we are uh, uh, honored. Is that him. as a book? It is as a version? book. It's uh, out from Verso Press. Out right now, and uh, thanks I bl- to Versa Press for for making this happen. Yeah, for sure. This is, I believe, the first interview that he has done about the book. As always, we are sponsored by Mailchimp. They're simply the best way to send an email newsletter. Uh, everybody does it. You should do it too. Peer pressure. <laughs> <laughs> and now here's Aaron with Seymour Hirsch. Welcome, Seymour Hirsch. You have a new book out, The Killing of Osama Bin Laden. It's out from Verso. And a lot of the coverage has could be sort of characterized as, is this true? And I want to sort of put that aside and say that that is sort of irrelevant to what I want to talk about, um, because I'm interested in how you come to these conclusions and how you come to the conclusion that you have a true story. I was just going to say that how do I come to the conclusion that is accurate? I mean, as opposed to um, not caring. 
So you describe this uh, red line that Obama drew when he said, basically, if there were chemical weapons used, we're going to do this missile strike. So I'm, I'm interested in your own work. Wh what is that red line for you? When do you know that you have enough to publish? That's an impossible question to answer in, in generically because sometimes it's actually in the writing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll be, I remember particularly at the New York Times, I did sometimes three months on a project. So it was always sort of long form investigation. I've been doing the same thing forever, I guess. How many years is this now? Um, I'm older than, and crankier than Bernie. Let's just leave it at that. So <laughs> okay, I've, I've been enough. in this business since 65. I got to Washington. And by then I was, I'd read, a, you know, I was one of those people that the war interested me. And in the beginning, my concern about the war was that we weren't fighting it right. You know, we're going after the commies there, and that was a good thing to do. And I've been educated at the University of Chicago, which is not inconsiderable because one of the things they focus there on, as they should in all school, is what, what we call, I would call, critical thinking. In other words, Chicago doesn't give you textbooks. They give you nothing but original material, and you have to sink or swim. And I always tell this story, which is almost true, about getting to the campus sort of as a raw kid out of the south side of Chicago. Uh, I didn't even, I, you know, I grew up from immigrant parents, and um, uh, the only thing, the only push I had on, on education was Book of the Month Club when I was 12. I used to buy, for 99 cents, I got the annual volume, the monthly volume. And I'd say five out of 12 times it was some anti-communist, you know, diatribe. But then I, you had other books. I remember vividly falling in love with history books in the Middle Ages and Hopsburgs. So you learned stuff. And so Chicago was, as I said, the, the place where you walked in, and uh, you know you're you're asked if you're a Platonist or a Socratic and a Maoist, and I I kid you not, for a second I wondered M E O W. What does a cat have to do with this? I had no idea they meant Mao, the Chinese leader. But that's what. So you get thrown into it, and you begin to if you just read original works, which schools don't do much. So it's a, so what they call a core curriculum, and they still have some of that. And a lot of schools do now. They realize. It's the idea that because it's in a textbook, it doesn't mean it's real. And then I became a police reporter. And How did that, you get a job as a police reporter? Oh, I yeah. just walked into it. It was just I just. Do you believe in serendipity? Um, I went to I went to college on a scholarship, and so I graduated with a degree in English and history in '58, and thought I would get a great job. I couldn't get a good job, and I went to law school, which I hated. And um, went from a good student to a bad student in one, in one year. So I got out of law. I quit law school. I, my grades were horrible in the land. I didn't go to class. And I was doing what 23-year-old guys do, you know, trying to figure out when I have to go in the Army. There was a draft then. Would have you gone, and gone to war at that point in time? It's all about peer pressure. I, I, I can tell you one thing I know. I don't think anybody, when they're out there, it's despite what you read in the, in all these, you know, in all the popular fiction, including in the newspapers, heroes don't die because they're heroes. They die for their buddies, and and people don't murder and savage other people, as except mostly as payback, because the other side may be doing it. You know, war is awful, and so you see awful things and you do awful things. You, you never know what's formative as you go along. You're creating things, and I'm. Um, I had a girlfriend who was terrific, and she was from Washington. And so we used to talk about politics, and her father was in the bureaucracy. And so I, 
all that happened is, you know what bird dogging is? Anybody use that word anymore? Bird, bird dog. dogging was when you went to a party and some guy hit on your girlfriend behind your back. Okay. So I'm at a party drinking too much or whatever else there was to do. I mean, I'm sure there was all sorts of, we used to call it Mary Jane then. And so doing what I'm doing, because I'm just footloose and had no idea what, you know, guess 23-year-old guy doesn't know which end is up. Yeah. And uh, that's where I was. And... Um, she got hit on by a guy that we ran into a bar about three months later. This is how I got to be a reporter. His name was Peter Lacey. And he was then working for something called the City News Bureau, where it was a little agency, Ben Hecht, if somebody knows that play, front page. It was this, there was so much crime and corruption in Chicago that the major newspapers got together with the wire services and the radio stations. There was, and some of the, the TV was a factor then too. And they set up a news agency to cover the basics, cover every police department. It was called the City News Bureau. It was just simply crime and courts. Mm. And the idea being, if you're on the street for the, that, the City News, um, you got a good story. You filed to City News, and City News immediately put it out. The newspapers decided once in a rare while they would run your story. Most of the time they sent their own reporter out or rewrote it, just sort of like when I was at the New York Times. Uh, it be a cold day in hell before a good AP story got in. We'd rewrite them and make up ours. You know, that's just the way that the business works. What kind of skills did you need as a police reporter at that point? Uh, being alive. <laughs> there were two people they hired. They hired people with the BA, and the other half were hired from the Medill School of Journalism. Yeah. And so I, Peter said, go apply. And I went down and I applied for the job, wrote out a form and went, went away. And I don't want to overdo this, uh, this childhood uh, as if I was some sort of self-destructive guy, but I was, I moved. And in my old apartment was a poker game. And I, I'm so bad at it, it's comical. But it was a table stakes, you know, and so I was out of it in 20 minutes. But I spent the night sleeping there in the morning. My old apartment, where I had lived there, when I applied for the job, at around 9 o'clock the phone rang and everybody was either fogged out or gone. So I picked up the phone and it was a guy named Ryberg. And Ryberg said, Hirsch? I said, yeah. He said, come down today, your, your name's come up. That's how I, and I went there and I saw Later, when I worked there, I saw Ryberg would call when they needed other people. He'd just start going through the applications until he got a hot one. And if you weren't there, he'd just put your name at the bottom of the file. So that's how I started my business career. I always wanted to be a journalist and thought about it and applied for Are you kidding me? I walked into it. I was a copy boy, and then I was on the street. And I was on the street in the south side of Chicago in, in, a, in an era of great corruption of the police department. And I was, um, uh, if anything, energetic and very interested, and it was sort of fun. Yeah, like what do you, how do you navigate a corrupt bureaucracy as a reporter? You watch what you do. You don't, you, don't, you don't take them on directly. First of all, I'm working the night shift in the Chicago downtown headquarters. And in Chicago in those days, I'm exaggerating only slightly, we had there was a wonderful comedian um, named Mort Saul, who was very, very wry and ironic. He dated one of my sisters. In High, we lived in Hyde Park when I was growing up. And Walt, he called Chicago's Auto Drive a sort of a main highway that circles the city or part of the city. He called it the last outpost of collective bargaining. It was, you know, five or ten bucks if for, to get off a ticket. And, it, you know, and some of the crimes, a certain percentage of crimes, when they discovered the perps, they were policemen off duty. I mean, that's what was going on. There was one station that was famous for it. The guys would get off duty, and if they'd gone to a house during the day to investigate something, they managed to leave a door or window unlocked, and they go raid it. And somebody finally figured out the pattern, and a bunch of cops went down. I mean, it was really pretty crazy. I don't think it's much better now, as you read, except now they're more interested in, in shooting African-American kids and pretending otherwise. It's still an ugly, racist police department. The thing about Chicago is it was right there, though. 
Yeah. Nothing subtle about it. And uh, a couple of years later, I was the I covered um, civil rights for a year, uh, and I covered Martin Luther King. And we used to talk about Chicago a lot. The worst experience he had was in Chicago, just in terms of being frightened when he made one. He, to the South, he understood to expect in Chicago the anger, you know, the, this Eastern European immigrant ethnic anger was so acute because it was such an economic challenge. They were hanging out by their toenails, and here comes African-Americans, black guys, right. willing to work for even less. One day on the night shift, when we would smoke dope and watch the dirty movies, I, eight, eight millimeter, the cops would give it to us. They were, they were three, two or three parties working all night. So you guys are sitting in a room uh, smoking marijuana and watching confiscated dirty movies. Not every day, but you could do that. It, it occurred. That's Chicago. It was great. So two postal inspectors are killed. Uh, federal inspectors, mail fraud stuff. And cops don't like when other cops get killed. And it was killed very close to me. It was a report about 3 in the morning. I'm monitoring the phones. That's my job, the radio calls. So I have this old Stu Baker. I drive to the scene, and I hadn't been in the Army yet. And here's this, dead people. I saw this car with bullet holes all over. It's not a pretty sight, blood all over. It stopped gushing, but it obviously it spurred it when they got shot. And I mean, you never. You know, what am I going to say? And there's this, there's a cop milling around, and somebody says, you know, what the f are you? And I show my press badge, and then I said, are they dead? And this beefy sergeant, in a rage, not really at me, takes me and throws me really hard against the squad car and bruises. I mean, I mean, you know, he really flung me. He said, not until they're pronounced, you little motherfucker. You know, not until they're pronounced. So I had a dilemma. I knew they were dead. But the coroner wasn't there. So I waited 20 minutes. The coroner came and I wrote the story, filed it in, and lesson number one. Sometimes waiting isn't so bad. The second great lesson, and I was working in the Hyde Park District, the famous Hyde Park District, where you know Chicago was. I'm just a kid and I'm liking what I'm doing and I'm good at it. I mean, I get along with the cops. And um, uh, some guy went nuts and shot up his house and set fire to it. And I get out to the, the scene I get out to the scene. It's in the Black Coat of Chicago. There's a street called Cottage Grove. Even though the World War II technically ended, still there were areas all black. And so I get out there, and it's like a scene, but they're all dead, four or five kids. Mama, Papa, Bear, and Little Bears, all laid out by size. The kids, they're all dead. And I'm just, God, I'm freaked out. And I get the names. The cops give me all the names of it. And I run to a payphone. There's such a thing, then that's how we communicate it. And I called up a guy named... Wonderful. His name was Casey Buckrow, who later became the environmental editor of the Chicago Tribune. And I was dictating this story, sort of, and the editor is a guy named Dornfeld. Dornfeld was a country guy that used to come in every day from the northern suburbs. He was at a farm and put his dirty boots all over the table. And Dornfeld gets in, they had a communication system which he could interject. And he said, and I'll never forget the language, ah, my good dear energetic, Mr. Hirsch, energetic being a word they used later uh, to describe people who, who care too much. You know, if, if you care too much, he could have said, oh, my good dear emotional Mr. Hirsch, because he clearly didn't have much use for me because of my obvious liberal biases. He said, uh, are the alas poor victims of Negro persuasion, something like that, of alas Negro persuasion. He said, yes. He said, cheap it out. I didn't know what that meant. And so he said, Casey told me, just file this. Seven people died in the fire in Southwest Chicago today, period. Are you kidding me? That was it. That was it. You know, they weren't people to the, to the daily papers. They were just seven black people who died in a fire. One guy went nuts. I don't even know the whole story. So there you are. So I learned about racism very quickly. 
you know, I, I, I was just a kid. You know, I didn't know that much. I, I read things. I knew there was this, but I didn't know it was so, it was so deep. I, if I did know, I didn't want to know it. And then I'm face to face with it. So you, you, there's a lot of things as I grow up that I'm doing. I'll just tell you something I didn't do. And, you know, when I love to talk about me being the intrepid journalist, one night, two, two cops, when I was still working night shift, two cops called in um, and they had, uh, they had arrested a guy for some crime, a black dude, is the way they put it. <laughs> they, I don't know what they called him. And, uh, but he tried to escape, so they shot him. Shoot, that sounded interesting to me. So I ran down to the garage, and I got there just as the squad car pulled out and pulled in, and two, there were a bunch of cops hanging around, and these two red-faced Irish cops, you know, the big gut got out, and one of them said, hey, man, so you really had a hard time with that guy? And he said, not knowing I was there, he said, no, I told the nigger to beat it, and I shot him in the back. <laughs> so I tell my editors, and everybody's scared. And they said, well, you don't, so I went and got the autopsy. And sure enough, the holes are in the back. And I can't tell you how nobody wanted me to go after that. And I can also tell you I did not do it. Well, what, what I'm curious about is, so in that incident, you decided not to write that story. But later in your I career... I was told, told not, not to write. No, right. what, was the, what was the first time that you published a story that you had been told not to? I'm guessing that many... Uh, leading up to your reporting on the My Lai massacre, there are many stories that there was many, many reasons not to publish, or there were many people who would tell you not to publish. When did you start sort of saying, hey, I'm going to start publishing this stuff, even if people push back against it? I think it was chronic anytime you're sort of going against the grain, that there was always pressure not to do it. But it's where you're positioned, you know, when I'm a kid there. Yeah. One of my first jobs was with UPI. I went in the Army and I came out and I worked on a suburban newspaper. And we began a crusade in, in southwest Chicago. I was the editor. I was hired 110 bucks a week. It was just a little paper. And yeah. I, we hired, I had a good, tough reporter. And we started going after the organized crime in that area. Yeah. And then I was offered a job at UPI in South Dakota, uh, covering the State House in Pierce, South Dakota. One of the things I did was, I, when I was just there covering the State House, I went and, and I spent time with the Ogallala Sioux who were being so screwed over. And so I wrote a five-part series on my own. Everybody wondered why I did it, but the Chicago Tribune ran it. Next thing you know, I got a job offer in Chicago from the AP. So there is a virtual, you know, it's different now. Yeah. It's a completely different business. The New York Times today had four full house ad pages and one half house ad pages. They had one display page on the back and one inside, almost a full page from Lord and Taylor or something. They had two sold, four and a half house ads, nothing else anywhere. They are dying. Hey, I'm going to pause things here quickly to give you a word from Trunk Club. They're one of my favorite sponsors. Why? They refreshed my wardrobe by sending me a trunk of new clothes handpicked by a stylist. That's right. It's easy to look good in the clothes that fit you perfectly that are picked by someone who knows your taste. So this is how it works. They have over 80 top brands. They'll ship them right to your door. You keep what you like. Send back what you don't like. This isn't just a way to shop online or a subscription service. You get your own stylist, free shipping, and 10 days to try on the clothes risk-free. 
And if you live in Dallas, New York, L.A., Chicago, or D.C., you can stop by a Trunk Club clubhouse to work with a stylist in person. So make a statement at the next big event on your calendar with a look that's handpicked just for you. Go to trunkclub.com longform. You type in your measurements, share your likes and dislikes, and you get your own personal stylist. Again, that's trunkclub.com longform. You'll be getting a trunk full of free clothes and support this show. This show is also brought to you by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it is all included with your Squarespace website. People will often come to me and say, hey, uh, hey, Aaron, I, uh, I need a, a website for my band or my bakery. You, you know how to do that. How do I do that? And I will say, do it with Squarespace. Why? It's easier. It's a simple, intuitive process. You can add and arrange your content and features with the click of a mouse. You don't need to know any code. And if you sign up for a year, you get a free custom domain. That's like half the work right there. Also, you're not starting from scratch. You've got award-winning templates. You've got seamless commerce tools. You've got 24-7 customer support. So in conclusion, if you're making about any kind of website out there, I think the best way for you to do it is with Squarespace. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter code LONGFORM. You'll get 10% off your first purchase, and you'll be supporting the show. Thank you, Squarespace. One of the things you just said was that you were sort of able to take on these larger and larger talk, um, targets in some ways with the backing of these institutions as you were employed by the Times, by the New Yorker, that gave a certain legitimacy to what you were doing. Is that possible without that kind of backing? I was just good. What you're talking about is a narrative. What happens in journalism too much, I see it in the daily papers too, probably because of you can't spend the money to do a big story and have two people do it as much as you want. I mean, in all fairness to the Times and the Washington Post, you know, which are sort of being suffocated from inside, read before you write. Read before you write and do enough work so that you don't get the hell out of the way of the story. There's no such thing as a sensational development today. There's a, just tell it. And the more you know, if you can really get a narrative going, you can win the fight with any editor. I still think it's possible. Now, not so much with the mainstream papers anymore, because I think they've, they've been, you know, they're, they're so intimidated by the White House. Let's talk about that, actually, because I think many of the things that, that you've sought to investigate were, in the opinion of the White House, say, noble lies. Um, and I think what you're saying is that news institutions can be complicit in the dissemination of those noble lies. In your view, is there ever a noble lie worth defending or should all secrets be interrogated? Nobody wants to write a story that's going to get some well-meaning American doing something dangerous, even if he's doing it, you know, for the CIA and stuff like that, about whom I, well, which yeah. I have a lot of questions. You, nobody wants to write a story that's going to hurt somebody. At the New Yorker, I wrote for the New Yorker a lot after 9-11, and there was a time in 2009, this is sort of relevant in a way to the, the book I've done, the Bin Laden book. Yeah. I went to Pakistan for quite a while, and I got deep into the bomb issue. You know, the Pakistanis are a big, huge national security problem for the us. The nuclear bombs. Well, they have, yeah, two. Uh, they have a second reactor. They have a long time had a reactor called Kahuta going, which is enriched uranium. They now have a second reactor going that's plutonium. Yeah. So they are really putting out stuff. When I looked at it in 09, the estimate was more than 100. We're talking about six years, it's seven years. It's probably, you know, close to 200 bombs. They're just cooking away. We can't stop them. 
there was initial fear of the Islamic bomb, you know, where they give some to Saudi Arabia. So we work really hard on two things. One, kissing up with the leadership there. Yep. You want a new helicopter, you want a new car. One of them's a golfer. You want to see me, Jack, Jack Nicholas, and play golf with him in, in you know, Columbus, where he lives, Ohio. You want a, a cutie for tomorrow night? We can do that for you, too. We'll just do it. I want to pause you and ask for a clarification here. When you are talking to someone either in the Pakistani intelligence or in the CIA, isn't that incredibly dangerous for them? I mean, you know, what are you doing talking to that Jew Hirsch, Pakistani military guy? Well, like? you know, it can, it can be done. You know, you have somebody else make the date. And you go to somebody's house. I mean, it's not, it's, it's, it can be done. There's, you know, um, the Pakistani intelligence service has to be very, uh, that's complicated. Yeah. But, you know, I'd been to Pakistan three or four times and nothing outrageous. I'd written stuff that Musharraf, the president of Pakistan, didn't like about the bomb. They had a man named A.Q. Khan who was a bomb maker. And I wrote a lot about that. So I'd been in and out and I wasn't that toxic. And I always got a visa. Yeah. Anyway, the point is, in the CIA, there was a, a, always a complete sense we're elite, particularly in the operations division, we're the elite, and uh, FBI, NSA. So after 9-11, the NSA was tracking three of the 19. Yeah. The CIA had two. Nobody shared information. And so I was at lunch with a bunch of these, my agency buddies, cynical, but the ones I like are the ones that are very cynical and cynical about the government. And, you know, and I said to one... One, he was a station chief in the Middle East. What is with you guys? They were moaning and groaning about the dumb FBI. I said, you know, here we are six months after 9-11, you guys are still not willing to work at all with these guys. What's with you? And this guy said to me, Hirsch, don't you get it? The FBI catches bank robbers and we rob banks. That's what we do. We do despicable things. Like how many people within the CIA are you in contact with, like at a given oh, time? Oh, if you're glad, I'll, later I'll write a list and give you the emails <laughs> okay, and cool. Gmail. You know I'm not going to talk about that. But. Yeah, you must be kind of a lightning rod now for tips. I oh mean, every every wacko and truth teller in the world, if you know, you've know you got a hot secret, you seem like the first person to take it to. What, How do you sort through all that? What's shocking to me is the number of people that tried to reach me and couldn't get me because I'm in the phone book. Thing. I didn't ever think about it. Almost every major story, even the, the um, there's even with um, the Snowden thing. There were some people that reached out for me, but they couldn't get to me, yeah. even though I'm in the phone book. Do you do email or just the phone? No, I do email. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking in your files, there must be a lot of secrets. Are you concerned about someone getting into your notes and that kind of thing? Uh, Boo-hoo. <laughs> Boo-hoo. Who cares? So what's the fir- when someone comes to you with a tip, what's, like, what's the first thing you do to start saying, is this it's, one for real it, or not? It's more subtle than that. It's Right now, there are people I know inside that will say, um, you better look at this, something really bad is going down. Yeah. In America, the way it works is people with access to classified information, you get into certain boxes of information and everything, uh, the way it works is there's, there's all sorts, of, when I first joined the Pentagon, when I first covered it in 64 for the AP, they all had little uh, clips that they would put, use in the p- plug into a certain office. And they all were, it was a, you, if you had 17 of these clips, you knew you were cleared to 17 access programs, special programs for intercepts, special programs for, you know, dirty tricks. And if you, you now it's all in a hologram. You have a hologram you put in, so it's hard to tell who's the heavy hitter. But a guy would walk around basically leaning over from all the all the different chains, clips, you know, all the access keys he had around his neck. So you really knew who the guy was. And that's the guy you want to get to is the guy with seventeen no, well, you security want to get clearances. To him, but no, but but 
Um, people talk about how tough it is now to get stories. In the McNamara days in the Pentagon, when I was covering the Pentagon, Robert McNamara was this god who I quickly figured out was a psychotic liar. He just had to be. The war wasn't going as well as he said. I'm reading everything else. I'm reading European press. As hard as it was then, much easier now. There's really no excuse for reporters not reporting more about what's going on around the world. They just don't read enough before they write. That's my general view. It's a nasty view, but it's true. What do you read? I mean, what's your own I just, sort of information? I, first of all, I have people that send me stuff from mm-hmm. all over. Yeah. I read the South Asian press. is very interesting. Mm-hmm. on all sorts of stuff. The, the papers in India, I read the Pakistani papers. I read the British press. I mean, I see stuff. Like this Bin Laden story is all over the world. The one I'm just doing now for Verso Books, yeah. it's all over the world. It's just, I, I have a little server and I, I can see maybe 300 different items right. in which there's some mention of the pretty systematic thing I'm saying, which is they're lying, they're lying, they're lying. Right, which is interesting in the context of this story, and but in a larger sense, it, it seems to suggest that we're entering a new era of information warfare where there's a very asymmetric availability of information. If you read the Russian press, it could not be more different than the American press and how it covers the Syrian war, the killing of bin Laden, et cetera. So within the book, you you actually in many ways suggest we ought to take more of a lead from Russia in the Syrian conflict. Where does the media war play into that? And where does the sort of reporter's role land? Well, it's stunning to me. I was writing, one of the stories I wrote was very early in the crisis over over the sarin attack. The issue for me there was, whoa, we got a crime. You know, it's not 1,400 killed. That was just a stupid estimate we made. The The American CIA took a took some pictures of the number of wounded. We don't even know what the, where the pictures were or what wounded they were. They took some wounded and they looked at the area and they figured out how area this East Guta was a suburb, how big that suburb was, and made a conclusion that if they extrapolated that, 1,400 was the number. The actual number was anywhere from, look, one is too many, but it was 250. It wasn't 1,400. It never was. Right. It was one less than 10%, well, maybe 15%. But look, it's still too many. Yeah. So journalistically, so how do I think about it? Is, is the value that, that the red line that Obama drawn, is that what makes it important? No. The reason everybody rushed to judgment is everybody wanted him to bomb. We like bombing in America. And the target list, as I wrote in one of those articles that's in the book, uh, the target, the target uh, list was initially 35. And by the time they got done playing with the target list, it was just some military structures. They brought it to, They were hitting waterworks and electricity works. I'm not saying dams, but bad stuff. But let me tell you the way I thought about it. And this is yeah. I, I love. I love the notion heurism, heuristically. So wait a second. We got a crime, and we know that El Nusra, etc., have this gas. And we also know this, that Syria has this gas. But what do we do in the next week or so? The only possible perpetrator, the only perp, this is like covering, being a police reporter, the only perp was Bashar. They never considered the other perp, and therefore they couldn't tell you about the intelligence. And so I had this amazing situation when I was doing this story, writing that there were intelligence reports. I knew from that the Joint Chiefs even did a study of how many troops it would take to go in and clean the hell out of all the rebel, rebel supplies of, of sarin and other nerve mustard gases. They were all over the place. They had it. It was 70,000 70, troops. That was all done between April and August when this thing happened, when the event that everybody talks about, when Bashar Assad murdered all his 1,400 of his people. So I knew all that. And so I start doing this, and the White House's answer, I say, I say there was a report 
I'm talking. This is how the government works these days in terms of dealing with the press. It has nothing to do with, nothing to do with anything other than protecting everybody. The president it has nothing to do with our job when you talk to the White House about anything. It's just almost comically useless. Is I that mean, new or has it always been like that? It's worse. Okay. Anyway, the point of all this is, I knew about this document. We go to the White House and we ask the National Security Council spokesperson, a woman who was a Foreign Service officer, served in Iraq, a perfectly nice woman. She's just doing her job. And she says, oh, no, there's no document like that. And we say, oh, well, there actually is. Oh, no, we can find no evidence. There's no, no evidence that anybody here knew anything about the other side having nerve agent. We now know from the UN that they were looking at it all the way. I mean, this is just, it was, so I actually asked somebody on the inside to do what he could in getting me as much information. I had the document scanned with the markings cut off. And I don't know if you've, you know, why would you? But if you, when you write, particularly in England, if you, if you know somebody at 10 Downing, his email address is umlaut.zip. So it's all these little marks. You couldn't be, you spend an hour trying to write an email to the guy unless you just copy something he sent you. And we have the same thing on our classified stuff. It's a very high level secret stuff. It's a randomized it, string. Basically. Well, it's just a randomized string. And, yeah. and, and, and certain numbers tell where the computer was right. that it came from. So this, my friend, went and there were 16 numbers, and he gave me 12 of them. So we gave that to the White House. And then here's what they said. It's wonderful. They, they said, this is when I really gave up on all of this. This is the worst I'd ever seen it. She calls back, and she says to a fact checker, this is a fact checker for the London Review, calls back and says, off the record. And off the record is something that's not, you know, it's not one, it's not one side, it has to be musically, both sides have to agree, but the White House says off the record, and the press just cows and doesn't defy it, and so it would have been hell to pay, so we didn't either. But off the record, she said, well, I'm not saying that there wasn't such a paper like this, but if it was, it was not taken seriously because it was done so badly. It was an all-source NSA, CIA, Israeli, UK, other foreign stuff, everybody, it was called an all-source piece. Israelis are all over Syria, of course, because they're worried that's their neighbor up north. Incredible. It was an all-source piece of paper. And there were other things in the paper that are just breathtaking. I just wrote, I just wrote what was relevant to Bashar. It's where else you could buy sarin all around the world, anywhere. So you, you, when you have something like that, you say to yourself, it's not just a bankrupt system. It's a comedy act. It's, it's bathos as opposed to pathos. It's not describable. What the major press puts up with and tolerates. I don't know, but I am different. The Times one day in 73 when I was hot at the New York Times. And I, you know, they knew who I was. Abe Rosenthal hired me. I was working at the New Yorker. They knew you were trouble. Well, he just knew, he hired me because he, he knew he needed more information. He wasn't getting the story he wanted to. So he used to walk into the newsroom and go behind me and ruffle my hair yeah. and say, how's my little commie today? And then the next line would be, what do you have for me today? If the kind of work that you're talking about does not exist at the New York Times anymore. Like, I'm not what, saying that. Or there's, there's a very good It's a stuff. mixed bag. What do you reckon? I mean, what would you say to someone who was, you know, the age you were when you were a police beat reporter who wants to get into doing the same kind of investive work that you do, um, you know, and get inside the government? The New York Times can, did a great series yes, on Libya. Yeah. I don't mean to comment on the quality of the New York Times, but the difficulty of doing the, the kind of work well, you do within it. It's all about access, so you can't really, you can't fight everybody. When, I, when the Bin Laden story came out initially a year ago in the London Review, the New York Times went crazy about me. 
and a bunch of the guys there who, you know, what happened is after after the you know the president announced we've got him, yeah, and uh, the next thing you know it's a big story, and everybody, I I don't know why. Uh, the war against terror is over. The one thing I did was I was happy we got him. But, you know, as I always say, you know, uh, uh, we're at that point, we're year 10. You know, how are we doing in this war? You know, that's what we, now we're years, what, 15? Yeah. You know, it's a disaster. And bin Laden meant nothing in that war, in the big picture. When, when I read your book, the most sort of striking thing is not your account of the bin Laden assassination, but that you're basically saying this mattered nothing. This had almost no ripple. Except for re-election. Yes. At the New York Times, for the next week, it's, wow, we got to get an exclusive detail. And so the government, I mean, they were giving briefings. They were describing that these SEALs, the enlisted SEALs, and you've known from the quality of the two guys have written books, Bissonette and O'Neill. O'Neill just got kicked out of every bar he was into. Bissonette's on being investigated for bribery. Yeah. I mean, they're not the creme de creme. I love the story they tell at one point that they actually took out, there was a bookcase, there were 39 books in English. Yeah. And I, I remember thinking to myself, they've just had a, a chopper blow up. They've murdered this guy. They put it in a bag. They want to get the fuck out of there. And the time on target, TOT, went from 20 to 40 minutes because they're waiting for a rescue chopper. One chopper wasn't big enough to take the 24 guys. It only, it only could fit 12. And it was one was down, so they had to get a replacement in there. And the replacement had to get fuel put in because it was going to go over the mountain. It took time. And that 20 minutes they were upset about it. Nobody bothered them. I mean, that's the other thing, that the other tell. The fire, and this is an upscale suburb. I describe it as sort of the Martha's Vineyard of Islamabad. It's where the, the it's 10 degrees cooler than the city. In the summer, it's 120 there. So you go up, it's only 100 up there. And a lot of upper class people, it's got a great police department. Fire, nobody comes. Yeah. Nobody's bothered. A, a plane's blowing up and smoke's coming out of it. Nobody's bothering. But one of the stories that got me the most was uh, one day, one of the stories that they did a big thing is Obama went to meet the SEALs who did the raid. And there was a dog there was on the mission. He petted the dog. And the dog had done great work. The dog had been smuggled on the, on the, on, on the chopper by one of the guys. I do have the image of the SEALs looking at the bookcase of American books and saying, which one do you want to read first? You know, I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, the stories, they, they, these guys, you could tell the press in those days anything you wanted to. It was made, and one of them was about the dog that they sent out to the guard because uh, they were worried about some of the townspeople coming, who nobody came at all. They'd all been warned not to. And they sent the dog out to guard against them. And I always think, oh my God, an Urdu barking dog. He can bark in Urdu. So they say, don't come, don't come. It was, without question, the height of silly stories. And I'm watching this. And meanwhile, what do I do? What am I getting? I have friends in Pakistan. I mentioned that I was there writing stuff about the bomb. The reason I mentioned that is that story I wrote had so much information on it that Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, called me at home on a Thursday night. It was going to close the next day. The government had denied everything we said. We just asked them. They said, oh, no, not true, not true. That's just, it's all pro forma. It's just, you know, you ask them to get their lie and you write their lie. And so, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to be so cynical about it, but that's basically what it comes to. Maybe there's an exception. In any case, they called up and they said, if this story goes as you've written, and we would share the story to them at the last minute. If you write this as it's, as it's if you publish this as it's written, we're going to have to shut the embassy and all the consulates and send the people out of, this, out of the country for a day for protection. There'll be riots. So we toned it down a lot. And what does that mean? That means I know people on the inside. Yeah. And so after 9-11, I got an email from somebody connected to the ISI, three pages. I go to my people on the inside, they say, man, you have no idea how bad this is. What we did is we lied 
about everything. We, we were not supposed to announce it right away. It was supposed to be covert, get the body out of there. And bin Laden, 10 days later or seven days later, I've heard two different versions, we were going to announce there was a drone strike in Afghan, in the Afghan um, Hindukush Mountains, the mountains between Afghanistan, the very sort of no man's land between Pakistan and um, Afghanistan. We were going to announce it happened there on the Afghan side of the border. Yeah. Not on the Pakistan side, and we we shot up a house. We took a after action look, and there was a tall guy there, and we uh, uh, we did a DNA test. We got him. It's Bin Laden. Would have been just as good for the president. It's a good story. It's it's sort of what people expect in a exactly. way. Exactly, but by going public, what we did is the president for re-election, and this was what I find really this bothers me for re-election, which is really important. You know, he's an African American guy running for re-election. He betrayed. Pasha and Kiani. Pasha was then the head of the intelligence service, and Kiani's the head of the army. Who did what? They were the guys that we had total trust in because we had to believe them about the bomb. We worry about where the bomb is. If we think they're going to do a strike and we don't want them to do it, we want to be able to bomb the crap out of it and right. stop those. And the PACs know that. Right. And so it's a trust relationship in the most core. It's a game theory relationship also, right? Absolutely. It's, it's, I do this, you do this, what do you yeah, do? Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's considered a, a serious art. Yeah. I'm, I've always mystified it. Well, you told me you were a terrible poker player, so I'm, I'm uh, guessing you're not skilled in it. It's more than that. <laughs> I've been married 51 years to the same woman, and I'll say to her, oh, I'm going to go out and uh, shoot hoops or meet my buddies and have a beer yeah. or go play cards. And I have no idea, talk about game theory, if she's going to say, what do I care or what? You're going yeah. to do that? We're, you're going to take me for a walk. I have no idea at any time what it's going to be. So I don't know what game theory comes in or out. Because there's a certain point where you just don't know about unintended consequences. Uh, the book is The Killing of Osama Bin Laden. It is out now from Verso. Please read it. Thank you, Seymour Hirsch. Bye-bye. That was the Long Form Podcast. Thank you very much to Cy Hirsch, who took some time out of a very busy New York day to come talk. Thanks to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky, our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, our intern, Courtney Harrell, our sponsors, MailChimp, Squarespace, Trunk Club, and actually, we've got one more sponsor. Max, can you tell us a little bit about that? Happy Nurses Week, Aaron. Thank you. I've been waiting for you to say that. It's Nurses Week, and in honor of Nurses Week... We have a guide up on the website right now. We'll put a link in the show notes. Our favorite articles about nurses. Nurses don't get enough shine. I agree. This is their week, and uh, this guide was sponsored by Johnson & Johnson. We thank them for their sponsorship. Thank you, Johnson & Johnson. We'll see you next week.